Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog, a podcast that hopes to become a collection of conversations offering support and connecting individuals affected by childhood cancer. Um, So in this week's episode, I had the privilege of sitting down with pediatric neurosurgeon, Dr. Jeffrey Raskin. Um, And to help me introduce this episode, I'm sitting alongside... Beth Armstrong. Hi, Megan. (laughs) And Beth, um, so Beth is actually on an upcoming episode um, where I sat down with her and our um, neuro-onc nurse practitioner. But Beth, what what is your role here at the Children's Hospital? Yeah, here. I work here at the Children's Hospital, and I am a coordinator of the neuro-oncology program. So I work with all of our little kiddos that have brain tumors or had brain tumors. Uh Um, And you work with Dr. Raskin? Yes. Yeah. Um, My main group is the medical oncology team, but with that, I also work with neurosurgery, um, radiation occasionally, and then everybody else. But yeah, so I work with Dr. Raskin pretty closely sometimes. Yeah. So that's going to help me introduce this episode. Before we talk about um, this week's episode, I'm going to look at this guy's credentials. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Raskin. So Dr. Raskin studied um, neuroscience at Pomona College. He studied molecular and cell biology and neurobiology at USC. He studied medicine at the University of Nevada. He did his residency at Oregon Health and Science University, um, his fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine. He's a former pediatric neurosurgeon um, from Goodman Campbell Brennan's brain and spine, assistant professor at Indiana University School of Medicine, and of course, a pediatric neurosurgeon at Riley Hospital for Children, (sighs) aka he's gone to school for 100 years. (laughs) That is a long, a lot of education. (laughs) Holy moly. Okay. And I hope I got that all right. So, um, but so I know that you know last week I got to observe him in the OR, which was super cool. And I had told you, um, because you and I work super closely with all of our brain tumor kids, and I had told yeah. you I really wanted to have a surgeon on. And you're like, oh, duh, ask yeah. Jeff. He's so great and easygoing, and he would totally be on. And of course, I emailed him um, and threw you under the bus and said that <laughs> Beth told me I could ask you. Uh, no, but he was so gracious yeah. and was like, absolutely happy to help in any way. And then I thought, I wonder if I could observe him. And I thought for sure um, he and his assistant would tell me, yeah, no. <laughs> but he no. was like, absolutely. Yeah, and- he's super He's super wonderful. I um, I do a lot of students. I have a lot of students that work with me. And so he always lets them observe. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So he, yeah. he's super great. So, yeah. So he let me observe um, last Monday, which I was really grateful for because I think um, it kind of put me at ease before talking to him, just watching him in the OR and seeing like, you know, how um, laid back and easygoing he is and super approachable. He's yeah. not like this big, scary brainiac surgeon no. <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, a lot of times surgeons can appear very scary, but um, we're actually really lucky because most of our neurosurgeons are actually all of the ones that I've worked with are, they're really they're just people. They're yeah. normal people. Normal people. Which is sometimes hard to see when you just see them as these surgeons who are you yes. know, doing things inside these little kiddos' heads. Yes. And I was telling you earlier that I was, um, I always, you know, record an episode, then listen to it back to edit it. And as I was listening back to it, um, I was kind of rolling my eyes and laughing to myself <laughs> because there are for sure a few moments of self-deprecation <laughs> where I'm like, you're so smart and I could never be this, you know, as smart as you to do brain surgery. And I 
had to call myself out for that in the intro today because, well, Dr. Raskin is super intelligent and amazingly skilled in, at what he does. Um, I just had to kind of honor and note that so is everybody that's yeah, a part well, of his team. I mean, I'm a nurse, and as you are a teacher liaison, I could not, I do not even begin to believe I know what you know about teaching and schools and all of that. So I'm a complete, like, I'm very ignorant when it comes to that. So it's just because that's like his specialty and that's your specialty. So everyone has their own like specialty and things that they know. And it makes sense that to like talk shop with a brain surgeon (laughs) might be a little intimidating. (laughs) And that also I have to say too is nothing that he projected. That was all (laughs) within me that I was a little nervous. But um no. So, yeah, I think everybody, when it's, you know, it comes to the tech or the teacher yeah, or the anybody. coordinator or the nurse practitioner, mm-hmm. um, we're all specialized and yeah. so skilled in our own um, way mm-hmm. and together make a strong team. And I know that he would say the same. He yeah. he said quite a few times in the episode that um, it's a team effort. I think he referred to himself as like the talking head sometimes <laughs> for the team, but that it's a group of people. Yeah. And I I think that I think that's really true. There are a lot of people that go, even if you don't see them at face, there's a lot of people doing things behind the scenes. And um, like, I know I work with his secretary or his administrative assistant all the time, but I'm sure many of the families and stuff don't know her. Mm -hmm. Um, She's so great. Yeah, she's wonderful. And she's super easy to work with. And she's so, so helpful. Um, so, and, I mean, I think and Dr. So Raskin would probably be lost without her because he wouldn't know where to go and when. <laughs> Absolutely. But he, I mean, even like as a nurse and not working directly with him, he has always, um, he has always made the appearance that like other support staff is important. He's always encouraged my job and, you know, like I yeah. know he has coordinators for other roles, but. Which is very invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and very in, important. Um, and I think. So definitely while in the OR and watching him, quite a bit flew over my head. But things that were hard (laughs) to miss were um, his leadership in the room, but like so nicely paired with this calming ease about himself. And he talks about that in the podcast too, how he feels like that's important. Um, But just how he treated everybody in the OR, even like being very aware that I had never been in there and checking on me a few times, like, are you okay? Uh, probably didn't want me to pass out. Um, I'm proud that you didn't. I know. I'm s- I left that day feeling like I could have been a nurse for sure. <laughs> still time. There's yeah. still time. Still time. No. Um, um, yeah. But yeah, he's he's just, it's really evident. Um, I think, you know, what I was trying to say earlier, it's just really evident that he loves what he does. He cares a great deal about um, yeah. his patients and the integrity of the OR in that room, in that space, I think is special mm-hmm. to him as it should be. And um, I just felt that. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's good to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool. It, I think it's it was it, a unique, cool perspective, too, to be a non-medical person watching because, like, different nuances or things I thought were interesting or watching. And I think I told him in the episode there was, like, a moment when they were – shifting the patient to another bed or so from prone to supine or whatnot. And there's it, to me, it was like a very powerful image because there's what, you know, maybe eight or 10 adults shoulder to shoulder Uh around this patient. Yeah. You can't tell from the back who's who. You can't tell who the nurse is or the surgeon is. Everyone everybody's the same. Yep. Everybody's the same. Everybody's diligently working to care for this patient. And it kind of made me misty because I was just 
Well, he could, you know, it's something he can't do it alone. And not yes. one person in that room would be able to do it alone. Yeah, so absolutely. It's cool that they're able to, like, just do this team effort. Absolutely. To make every, like, step go as smoothly as possible. Yeah. And I think that image kind of personified that. But, yeah. Um, cool. I'm excited for you to listen to, for everybody to listen to this episode because, um, yeah, it's kind of like brain surgery for a fifth grader, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are definitely really- a few times he was getting super technical, but also where he did a great job in just um, layman's terms, explaining <laughs> things to me. Um, and I think I learned a lot. Um, and so it was really great. And I think we ended on a really great note, too. Um, we okay. talked about, um, as I think we ended, he, you know, was you know, thanking me for my role and just the work in reintegrating our kids yeah. back into society and in, into school and acknowledging that this isn't an easy journey. But he talks about, um, or we both, you know, talked about at the end how um, adversity builds resiliency Absolutely. and character. And while this is, you know, un- an unfortunate chapter in your book or part of your story. Yeah. Um, that there's a lot of growth that can come from this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And with a good team, it's, you know, that's important to help with that growth as well. Yeah. And I think it's hard because kids in general, I mean, the front of their brain is not fully developed yet. So that logical part of thinking, it's hard for us to tell kids this will be better. Yeah. I know know that it seems like everything in your current life sucks right now and is falling Mm -hmm. apart, but this will get better and this isn't going to make you or define you. You can grow from this and you can become, you know, someone different than you thought you were going to be, you know, the day before this happened, but you will still be somebody amazing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we talked about that too, that maybe your memory is different and maybe the type of learner you are is different, but there are workarounds for that. Absolutely. Um, And there's support that you can get, whether it be um, through talking on the phone with your nurse coordinator for hours or the school teacher (laughs) helping you get back into school or this or the psychologist talking to you about how this trauma is really making you feel but there's things that you can do and supports that you can get a hold of to help yeah I believe and I think it's also important for not only the child to recognize but the families to recognize that also is like yes your child may not be um, exactly the same as they were, you know, the day before they were diagnosed or the week before or things like that. They still have really amazing abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, it's not focusing on what they can't do any longer, but focusing on what they can do and how they can do so many things. So, um, I, I just think that's super important for everybody in the whole thing to recognize. Yeah. is like, this is what they can do and how they can do things. That's funny you say that because he literally said something very, I think he said, um, we need to not say I could do. Mm-hmm. Like I, and comparing yourself to the child or, you know, that you were before all of this. So not focusing on what I could do this. Well, yeah. what can you do now and where can we go? Yes, absolutely. So focusing on the future and yeah. what abilities we do have. And, you know, it just may bring out different ones that are stronger than you ever realized before. Yeah. And in saying that, I just want to note too that where our kids are developmentally, it's not, we can't expect them to get there on their own. So that's why it's important to have adults and communities rallying around them and offering supports to them to show them, to help them get to that place. We can't expect our kids to say, this adversity is going to make me, (laughs) you know, a super strong adult down the road. They they don't have that. They uh, need help with that. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that's why we're here to help. So So, I'm excited to hear. Yeah. And then Beth is on next week's episode. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. 
So we can't wait. Well, thanks, Beth, for all you do. Thank you for all you do, Megan. Well, hope everybody enjoys this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, so we're recording. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Raskin. Um, So I had the privilege of observing you in surgery last week. Coolest experience ever. Thank you for letting me do that. Um, um, But I'm convinced after that that you have the world's craziest job. Um, And I don't even can't even wrap my mind around how you guys do what you do. So I guess before we get started, I'm curious of just your background and how you became a neurosurgeon. What led you to this career path? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This I've never done this before, so this is very exciting. Yes. Um, my dad always used to say, I have a face for radio, uh, which I think he was being... You have a, you have a voice, voice for radio, too. Uh, yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> hey, if you're nervous, you can use my silly putty. Oh, cool. All I right. like this. Therapy Sweet. Right? It smells like... Lavender. Awesome. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, why? How did you become a neurosurgeon? Yeah, you know, I think um, you become one over a long, long, arduous road of schooling and training. Uh, it is not something that you can just uh, decide to do and then go to school and do it. Yeah. Uh, so I was lucky enough to have the foresight as a young uh, college student to think that I wanted to do medicine in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, in college, I, I worked in uh, Karen Parfit's lab at Pomona College and did uh, recording from the hippocampus of rats. Mm-hmm. And uh, that involved decapitating a rat and dissecting out the hippocampus, which is a learning and memory structure also involved in seizures and mm-hmm. seizure genesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I realized, and then I would record from those slices that I made out of the hippocampus for 12 hours or so. Mm-hmm. And I realized that like the five minutes of surgical dissection was the best part of that whole thing. And then mm-hmm. the 12 hours was so boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so I decided I probably wanted to do something in surgery. And I was a neuroscience major. That was the most interesting major, I thought, because it was this multidisciplinary major yeah. Uh, where you got to pull in psychology and biochemistry and uh, neuroanatomy and put it all together yeah. into this uh, primary understanding of yeah. the central nervous system. I yeah. thought that was fascinating. It was yeah. a pretty new major at the time yeah. in, the, um, in 99. Uh, and so uh, from neuroscience, I went, I struggled with a lot of things. My mom died of cancer when I was that age and I didn't get into medical school. So how old is that? 22. Like, okay. Yeah. So I had applied to medical school, but I didn't get in. And mm-hmm. uh, I realized that I was going to have to uh, get a graduate degree. So luckily at that time, I went to the... Uh, hey, that's like the Michael Jordan story, right? Like he tried out for his high school basketball team and didn't get it. And didn't get it. You yeah. didn't get into medical school and how it Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's just an example. So many people, you know, yeah, you face adversity. And then yeah. I, mean, I think FDR said uh, something like... Uh, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor, yeah. which is, I think, a good motto for mm-hmm. life. I mean, if there's adversity, you should just Build go through it, go over it, go yeah. around it, but accomplish your goal. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got, I went to uh, the Keck School of Medicine at USC, which is just right next door to Pomona College, okay. uh, essentially in Los Angeles, okay. and got a degree in cell and uh, molecular biology. Okay. And, uh, and then that's a master's degree, two years degree. And then I reapplied to medical school and got in, I went to my state school, uh, university of Nevada. Okay. And then after that, I really 
buckled down and got A's and ended up matching into neurosurgery. It's a match process. So all applicants interview in mm-hmm. wherever you want to go. There's mm-hmm. about 99 to 105 programs, depending on who's on probation at what time. Mm-hmm. And so you mat- you you interview there, and then they interview 40, pay- 40 uh, applicants uh, for their two or three spots a year. And then a computer kind of figures everything out. A computer just sort yeah. of matches applicants Algorithm with, with like, place. Yeah. And I matched you know, my first choice, which was Oregon Health and Science University okay. in Portland, Oregon. And uh, then that's seven years of training. And then in that context, I started doing pediatric neurosurgery and thought I wanted to do that alone. So I went to a fellowship at Texas Children's Hospital. Okay. And then Andrew J., my current boss, said that there was a job in minimally invasive epilepsy surgery here. And that's why I'm here in Indiana. Okay. Crazy. Yeah. So it's a long road. And all every neurosurgeon has a road that sounds very similar to that. There's lots of ups and downs, lots of changes of location, lots of different areas where they were trained, different people trained them. But ultimately, it's um, you can't get out. You can't become a neurosurgeon until you're four years of college, four years of medical school, seven years of residency, when, usually one year of fellowship. Sounds like a good vetting process to kind of weed people out if you're not meant for the trade. It is. And yeah. then at that point, you're still not board certified. At that point, you have to um, submit 125 cases uh, over okay. your first couple of years. And then you are selected to become board certified. And then you sit for an oral board exam, which I've just completed. Okay. And then at the end of that oral board exam, if you pass, you're board certified. So it takes another okay. two plus years before you finally board certified. How many surgeries do you think you've done? Uh, well, Ish. I think, yeah, in, in residency, I did somewhere around 2,500 surgeries. In fellowship, I did 550, 550. So I'm right around 3,000. And then every year for the last two years, I've averaged about 215 cases. So another 400. So somewhere around 3,500 cases. Wow. Um, so another reason why it was so cool and um, you know great for me to be able to observe you in the operating room is um, I feel like that's a perspective or kind of piece of the puzzle to the patients and families I work with that I know nothing about. Um, I meet families um, pretty soon after diagnosis, but in the oncology setting, like, you know, when they're seeing their providers. So I don't know much about surgery. I don't work with neurosurgeons or really anybody in your team. And I feel like that is a pretty intimate, um, intense part of their treatment plan. Um, So I think it was cool for me to see that perspective in such a, I feel like the OR is like such an intimate, special setting. Um, but and I know you do lots of different types of brain surgeries, but specifically because this podcast, you know, is geared towards um, pediatric oncology to focus on oncology okay. and brain tumors. So, what are, I guess, briefly, um, brain tumor surgery one hundred and one? Sure. <laughs> what, what are some of the common procedures that you do for your brain tumor patients? Yeah, the brain tumors can present as all sorts of different things. I mean, they can be emergencies and need. Mm-hmm. Uh, control of the intracranial space, which mm-hmm. is provided by a tube uh, that we put into the ventricular system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ventricular system is the inner cave of the <laughs> inner cave of the uh, brain and it can, and it contains spinal fluid. Yeah. So uh, that can become obstructed and lead to a surgical emergency. Usually patients present with seizures and comatose and they need a neurosurgical procedure Im- immediately. 
Uh, and then in other cases, they present with a seizure and it's some um, primary brain tumor that we call it parenchymal. It's inside the actual substance of the brain itself, not necessarily mm. obstructing or involving the ventricular space. Okay. Um, and in those cases, we have a little bit of time to sort of figure out what it is, the best approach to it, whether or not we're going to resect at all, or we're going to leave part of it if it's in a dangerous area to resect and cause a deficit. Um, brain tumors can be histologically benign, um, but malignant in the location that they are. So, mm. you know, the a good example of that is a patient with a craniopharyngioma. Mm-hmm. Craniopharyngiomas are histologically benign. Uh, they don't they're not cancer, like neoplastic, like they're going to cause any problem uh, and metastasize and in, into a different location. But mm-hmm. they're right around the pituitary gland, the hypothalamus, the optic apparatus, and a lot of these patients go blind. Mm-hmm. They need radiation. It's really hard to remove from the vascular structure so they can get strokes. And then they have you know, problems of the pituitary gland, the hypothalamus, like hypothalamic obesity and diabetes insipidus. And these are debilitating conditions from a benign tumor. Mm-hmm. So it's not always a one-to-one correlation between histological benign tumor and a benign clinical process. But I think that when you're considering surgery for brain tumors, there's a few goals. Number one is to uh, reconstruct cerebral spinal fluid pathways either by shunting, if you Mm -hmm. have to put a shunt in, or by removing a tumor so that CSF pathways can reconstitute, Mm -hmm. or by endoscopic third ventriculostomy, which is the creation of a new channel where spinal fluid can go through the floor of the third ventricle instead of going through areas where it normally would. The second goal of surgery is tissue for diagnosis. We don't know what anything is until we take a piece of it and we give it to pathology, and the pathology tests it in a variety of ways, looks at it under their microscope and tells us this tumor is blank. And then we say, okay, this tumor is blank and you have it in this one little spot and mm-hmm. we should take it out you know, or we should give you chemotherapy, radiation or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But all further therapies are dependent on what the actual tumor type is. And even though there's good imaging techniques that are approaching our ability to understand what exact tumor type is, mm-hmm. they're never going to be able to understand the genomics uh, or, or the underlying genetics of a tumor, which now is becoming more and more important in stratifying outcomes. So you kind of answered another question that I had um, in that, so when you're, when you're doing a biopsy, um, well, I was going to ask if you were able to look at imaging and know what the tumor was or diagnose it, or if that kind of gives you an, an idea, but really you have to do a biopsy to, to know how to best treat the tumor. Yeah, I yeah. think in a lot of cases, you can have a very good idea what a, a specific tumor type is. Like take craniopharyngioma, for example, it presents in the same spot, it looks the same. Yeah. Uh, and so you can pretty much guess that that's a craniopharyngioma. Yeah. Um, you still want to resect it as much as possible. And uh, and in very rare cases, it can be something else, maybe a Rathke's cleft cyst, which has a little bit different of a prognosis. What if it's not safe to do a biopsy? Yeah, in some cases, um, it's not safe to do an open biopsy. But I think that you can 
talk about doing a stereotactic biopsy. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there's anywhere not safe to do a stereotactic biopsy. What's a stereotactic biopsy? Yeah, so stereotaxy is the ability to set up a Cartesianate coordinate plane inside the head like a GPS system. Okay. Um, and you can do it with a robot. You can do it with a frame. You can do it with... Um, I guess frame frameless stereotaxy where you just use a computer system. Okay. Um, but you can essentially set up a GPS coordinate system for the head. Okay. And then you know that, you know, you know where your instruments are in space in mm -hmm. that GPS location. And so you can move things along exact trajectories like a biopsy needle. So uh, this is very commonly done for tumors that are in the brainstem or in really eloquent areas. Uh, like the thalamus or the brainstem, where you need to get, get like a little tiny piece of it, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't want to destroy a bunch of brain um, on our way to getting it. We call that access morbidity, corridor access morbidity. Mm -hmm. And uh, in those cases, you would just put a very thin needle down a tract that you had defined that has no blood vessels or anything in it based on the imaging. Okay. And that's done in the operating room. You just put like a 1.9 millimeter needle into okay. the lesion. You aspirate or you suck out a little piece of it. You send the pathology. When you resect brain tumors, do you, how are the different types of ways that you can do that? Like aspirating it, literally cutting it out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are the different? Different tools? Yeah. Talk to me like I'm a fifth grader. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> It, it's confusing stuff, and people think that it's just well, like... Well, I think like me before even ever, and I'm obviously, I work in a hospital, I'm not medically trained at all, I'm a school teacher, yeah. so it's such a weird world for me, and I think um, maybe a totally non-medically trained person would envision like a craniotomy, and <laughs> that you're using like medieval looking tools and yeah. digging and, and getting that out, but that's not, there's lasers, there's robots that you use, there's so many different types of... right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that it, people think about brain tumors as in like there's a blueberry in a bowl of oatmeal, and you just you get to the blueberry, you pull it out, and then the yeah. bowl of oatmeal is the brain, and just stays there. But yeah. it's not always so clear. In yeah. fact, it's very rarely so clear. It's only really that clear when yeah. it's a metastasis, when it's in mm -hmm. an adult, for example, and it's some you know lung metastasis that's in the middle of the brain. Then yeah, there's no confluence. Uh, there's no blending between that tumor and the mm -hmm. brain. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about primary brain tumors, there's blending from normal brain into tumor. And where you make the differentiation... Yeah, how do you differentiate between normal tissue and... It is not possible under the microscope to really see the difference in most cases. Uh, and so you have to use feel. What does the tissue feel like as you're rubbing your suction along the tumor? It will feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's more rough than the brain. Sometimes it's less rough than the brain. Um, how do you learn that? practice? I think that's why it's seven years of residency yeah. or another year of fellowship. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the consequences can be quite high. I mean, yeah. if you take all the tumor plus a margin, you're likely to incur a deficit, a neurological deficit, mm -hmm. which could be debilitating. I mean, mm -hmm. you could make someone hemiplegic, you know, totally paralyzed on one side or both sides just by taking a little too much. Whereas if you leave just a little bit of tumor behind, maybe that tumor is not sensitive to chemotherapy or radiation. Maybe that means all the difference between living a year and living 15 months. And so then that's a bad problem too. Yeah. Do you feel like you're weighing that risk versus reward um, when you're looking at imaging and deciding a surgical plan or while you're in there working? Is it always happening? Oh, I think you have to have defined that 
risk versus benefit of total anatomic resection versus leaving a bit behind and maybe not causing a deficit with the family before you ever go into the operating room. Um, because that is the family is going to have to live with, you know, their mm -hmm. son or daughter having no tumor left, but maybe a deficit that they'll have to live with for the rest of their lives. Consequence action. Versus, yeah. uh, you know, a very malignant tumor that mm -hmm. is going to cause death. Um, maybe the answer is taking as much as you safely can, leaving a little bit if it's attached to a cranial nerve or if mm -hmm. it's in the motor strip mm -hmm. and letting that child live maybe a slightly shortened life compared to a gross total resection, but without any deficit. And that's only something that the family can explain what they want. So there are there not times maybe that you'd go in to do a biopsy and there's like an oppor the opportunity is there to resect more and you would take it? So that's a good question. So that comes up sometimes in cases like germinoma, where you mm -hmm. think it's a it's a tumor that is very responsive to chemotherapy and radiation, but you're not 100% sure the markers, the serum markers mm -hmm. aren't telling you anything. So then mm -hmm. you go biopsy it. So mm -hmm. you're in the operating room. Usually they're pretty deep seated. They're mm -hmm. in deep to the outside of the skull, mm -hmm. which, you know, the deeper it is, the less vision you have, the less ability you have to control things, the further away from your actual hand, bleeding can come. So it's all a little more dangerous the further into the skull it gets. If it's right on the surface, that you can imagine sense. that's pretty yeah. easy to control a problem. Yeah. Um, so these lesions that are germinomas, they tend to come deep inside, like maybe the pituitary or even the pineal gland region. Mm -hmm. And if you take a biopsy of that, you send it to pathology and they say, this is germinoma, then you stop operating because that is such a sensitive tumor to radiation chemotherapy that even if you get a small deficit or you get a little bleeder that you can't control or whatever happens after that, it's unnecessary because mm. we know that chemotherapy and radiation work very well. So, so that, you get the path back while you're operating? Yeah, you can, you usually get a frozen, uh, frozen interpretation back. So the interpretation you get back is wrong about 30% of the time, not here in Indiana, but in general in the okay. nation. And that's because... There's lots of nuance between uh, histological diagnoses mm -hmm. and a frozen section is literally them just fast freezing a tiny piece of tissue that you send them mm -hmm. and then looking at it with no stains, really one stain, maybe an H and E stain, but they're not able to do the different stains that maybe take a day or three days to set up and mm -hmm. will differentiate one tumor type from another. So they're basically just looking at cells and they're saying, these cells look like this tumor, but it could be, you know, five other different tumors. Yeah. Uh, so it's a guess. And you have to take that as another data point when you're operating. But if it's in the right location and you think it's germinoma, for example, and they say it's a germinoma, then that's a, that's a case where you're just biopsying and you're stopping. Even though you could potentially take more, the risk of getting a complication there is unnecessary because it's so responsive. But in most cases, you would... Uh, try to achieve as much cytological reduction as possible. So cytoreductive therapy is what surgery is, is intended to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hit that on the head when you talked about there's lasers, there's suctions, there's all sorts of things. Uh, they all are designed to reduce the number of cells in that tumor. Mm -hmm. um, the best is surgery, is using a suction aspirator, which is like a vacuum that you hold in your hand. Seems like least invasive or harsh. I don't know, though. 
Yeah, they come in different sizes. Yeah. They come with different size holes for your thumb, like a tapered uh, hole where uh -huh. you can control the force or okay. like just a little round hole where you can control the force less. Mm -hmm. um, the tips are different shapes uh, mm -hmm. and they interact with the tissue in different ways. Um, and you can use this. I mean, that's the most common instrument any neurosurgeon uses, period, is the suction. That's because there's spinal fluid, there's blood, you're just trying to see what you're doing yeah so one hold, one hand holds a sucker the other mm -hmm. hand holds whatever else you're using scissors or a forceps or an instrument holder or whatever it is okay um and so that's the most common type of brain tumor surgery you'd use uh -huh. a bipolar electrocautery to control bleeding and then you use a sucker to just sort of suck up whatever you're destroying and then in is the comp sorry is the composition of a tumor oh, like pretty vastly different can it be mushy to like Hard. Yeah. So if you're just, if it's a mushy tumor, we call it discohesive, which means it does, the cells don't stick to each other. Those are usually malignant tumors and okay. they're a little bit easier to remove because okay. of that. So you would put like a sock on the suction canister. Anything you suck up in the suction goes into the sock and mm -hmm. you send that to pathology. That's okay. easy to do. Yeah. Now, when you get a little bit more fibrous tumors, mm -hmm. then you have to start bipolaring and then cutting. That's very laborious. Uh, yeah. It's a lot more difficult to do that sort of tumor section. And if you put that tumor in the middle of the brain, that's an all day case. That's a very yeah. difficult case. Yeah. Um, and you don't know what the tumor sense. is going to be like until you get to it and you yeah. start dissecting it. So that's why sometimes we'll tell family it's going to be four hours and it turns out to be 12 hours. And it's because yeah. the tumor is really difficult to remove. And you can't, it's Which not. I'm sure they're going nuts. Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. not a blueberry and an oatmeal dish. It's. Yeah got fingers and stuff sticking out all over into the brain. So you want to remove it as carefully as possible. So would you say it's often that you look at imaging and maybe be surprised by what you see when you're operating, like the composition or just... The composition is always a little surprising. You never really know if mm -hmm. it's going to stick together, if it's going to come out in one piece, which mm -hmm. almost never happens, yeah. uh, or if it's going to be a process. Um, I don't... You're, you shouldn't be surprised... You know, as far as what vessels are around, what nerves are around, sure. what other neuroanatomical structures are around, because uh, that's our job is to um, interpret the radiographic images in the context of a neuroanatomy, yeah. our knowledge of neuroanatomy. And so you should never really be surprised to see a blood vessel. Yeah. Um, but you might not 100% know if that blood vessel is just passing by, in mm -hmm. which case you should leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Or is it going into the tumor, in mm -hmm. which case you should take it. That sort of sometimes is part of the dis clinical decision-making and removing tumors. Um, so what about, like, let's say a child, you know, presents to the ED and for whatever reason, whatever they're presenting with, the medical team says, let's do some imaging and comes back and there's a mass. Yeah. Who sees that first? You guys are an oncologist? Oh, because they would need a biopsy first, right? Yeah. The ER is usually, I mean, they're the first people to see the child. Yeah. Um, sometimes they do have to tell the family that you have a new diagnosis brain tumor and we're going to get the neurosurgeons involved. Mm -hmm. I think neurosurgery is equipped nationally to be first responders in this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and we're used to giving people bad news. Yeah. So we show up first. I mean, we are the ones who admit these patients. Oncology usually does not. Um, usually they're being they're coming to the ER because there's a problem. That problem is usually at the end of the compensation phase. Um, mm -hmm. So if we just go back to what the skull is, it's a closed container. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it has brain, spinal fluid, and blood in it, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. in different ratios. 80% brain, 10% blood and spinal fluid. Mm-hmm. If you start growing a mass inside the head, things have to accommodate for that mass, right? Yeah. So first it's CSF. You yeah. get decreased CSF production, and then you get shunting of venous blood. And then you get compression of the brain itself, which mm-hmm. can lead to neurological symptoms. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, there's no more compensation inside the head, yeah. and you have a critical problem. Yeah. So that's the end of the compensation part of the Monroe-Kelly doctrine. That's what it's just called. Yeah. And uh, when you're at that point, usually it's when patients come to the ER. And then, so that's kind of a medical, they're right around medical emergency sort of time. So neurosurgeons are the ones who control the intracranial space by putting a drain and then, Mm -hmm. you know, get further imaging and then talk with oncology about what we're going to do. Get an ophthalmology exam to look at the eyes. Sometimes tumors can be seen in the back of the eyes and Mm -hmm. then that's sort of diagnostic. Sometimes uh, we look for pressure in the back of the eyes as an indicator to the time course. So if you have pressure in the back of the eyes, probably... Um, you've had a kind of a chronic problem ongoing mm-hmm. versus no pressure in the back of the eyes. It's just something that happened immediately. And then we have to deal with that sort of differently. Um, so we get basically a multidisciplinary uh, team sort of organized around neurosurgery. And then we formulate a plan and it can take sometimes a while to formulate that plan. We know yeah. that patients do better if we have a plan and if we have, uh, the correct team in place. So it's not just one surgeon who does everything, right? It's like a huge team of people. It's the uh, the nurses that give you your instruments, the nurses that know how to work all the tools that you'll use during that case. Yeah. It's the uh, patient support nurse who yeah. is, can interact with the family. All of this gives to a better experience. And, and you shouldn't be doing this in the middle of the night with people who don't know how to use the instruments. Yeah. So we plan it specifically to lower the risk and increase the patient outcome. Yeah. Uh, and that takes a little bit of planning. Sometimes patients and families get frustrated at that, but it could take two, three days Yeah. Um, before you're diagnosed and uh, operated on. So um, like if a child were to present in the ED and it'd be an emergency situation, that seems like a lot of planning and assessing and figuring out like what surgical approach you're going to do pretty quickly. Yeah. So initially we stabilize the patient. So, you know, the ER is responsible for airway breathing circulation and then neurosurgery is, is responsible for CSF diversion. Do we need to control intracranial space? Is the midline shifted over? Yeah. And then worry about like problem. So then we might rush that child to the operating room, get an EVD in place. An EVD is an external ventricular drain. It goes in the middle of the brain where the CSF is produced. And once that drain is in place, we can clamp it and just leave it clamped. Or more commonly, we can drain spinal fluid in a safe way so that the pressure comes down inside the child's head and they're not at risk for uh, central herniation syndrome, which is a killer. So once we have control of the intracranial space, then we have all the time in the world to discuss a plan and make it as safe as possible. See, I'm learning stuff because yeah. I, I would think like I'm envisioning a kid like rushing into the ED and then, you know, seeing that there's pressure and then you having to like remove a tumor. But you just need to get the fluid under control correct, or that restriction yeah. and then you can make a plan. That's right. And the it's tumor, a team that's making that. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The tumor is a problem that needs to be removed. But more importantly the intracranial space needs to be controlled and then we can make a controlled uh, approach to a plan with our whole team. That's way better than 
just rushing in the middle of the night or just having one surgeon who works alone doesn't have the benefit of oncology, yeah. um, radiation oncology, and uh, ophthalmology and all these other people who are critically important to the outcomes. So you talked a little bit about it being a team effort. And certainly when, you know, I was observing in the OR, I think, I don't know if there were like eight people in there. So two or three different nurses, yourself, there was a fellow, there's anesthesiologist. Um, there were some techs, there were, I don't know, the, what what's the title of like a bioengineer mm-hmm. who was manning, like helping with the robot. Yeah. Um, so quite a few different people. It was kind of a powerful image, I thought to me as an outsider and not medically trained person at all to watch, um, especially as you're moving the patient um, from prone to supine. And there was like these, you know, 10 adults shoulder to shoulder working on the patient. It was kind of a powerful image and just like the team that's really so focused on um, keeping that patient safe and um, the, the just team environment that is in place to support your patients. But I guess, how would you describe the environment of the OR to somebody that's never been in there before? It's extremely intimidating if you've never been in there before. Yeah. Uh, I, it's my happiest place uh, on earth. Like when I'm in the operating room, I'm very happy. Yeah. Uh, So I think you get over that intimidation pretty early on. Yeah. I think because you're the surgeon, you never leave. You're there from the time the child goes to sleep to the time the child wakes up. Yeah. So you are in charge. I mean, just, you're the, you're the leader. Yeah. yeah. And the anesthesiologists that, you know, sometimes they switch out. Sometimes they're there the whole case too, but yeah. the nurses will switch out and yeah. get lunch and so on. And this yeah. is important for people to stay focused. Yeah. But part of the neurosurgical training is that you don't switch out and get lunch. Yeah. Um, you're in there. And yeah. So you're there from the start to the, to the finish. So you're in charge. Uh, and I think that's great because you can set the tone for the yeah. team. Yeah. Um, and it, because it's so intimidating and because people are worried about, you know, dropping the, a knife or doing something like yeah. that, would, that would otherwise be considered clumsy or yeah, whatever sure. would negatively impact the situation. You have the opportunity as the leader of the room to just relax everyone, just take down the stress level. Yeah, I, I felt that with you. Yeah. I felt like you um, were because I could I was listening to you. There was a fellow in the room. So I was listening to you talk through to him what you were doing and then talking with him about when, when he was doing it. And so that felt very like meticulous and surgical and smart. But then um, when you were talking to staff and nursing, you were just kind and carefree. And like, I think you joked about like, I'm hungry. I could use a sterile Snickers that made everybody <laughs> laugh. But like, I think that's so important because, yeah. um, and I think, I think I have a unique perspective in this hospital sometimes because I'm not medical. So I can often feel intimidated by all of you. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure nursing feels like that or techs feel like that. Um, so I think it's really important for you to set that tone and make sure everybody feels comfortable in that space or I else there's a lot more room for error. I'm absolutely. Sure. Exactly. Right. I think if, if people are nervous, they're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because there's so much on the line. Yeah. Yeah. And the reality is, I mean, what we do is extremely important, but there are a, there's a little bit of wiggle room to how an instrument gets handed to you. I mean, yeah. it doesn't really matter if it's slapped in your hand or it's not slapped in your hand yeah. as long as you can feel it and you have good chemistry going on between you and the surgical tech as an example of who gets 
nervous in an OR. Yeah. Um, I think what you saw was a stereo EEG, which is the integration of a lot of different technological components, Mm -hmm. a a robotic uh, component, and then we create a stereotactic procedure and the patient's prone on their belly. And like you said, it, it takes a whole lot of people focusing not making mistakes in a good mental space in yeah. order to accomplish a, a good procedure. Um, and so I think it's really, really important to make sure everyone is at ease as much as possible, focused, um, but having a good time. I mean, it's um, it's important work. And yeah. it doesn't have to be like super high stress every time. Yeah. So in, in saying that too, I wonder what you would say your per, what personal characteristics of you, Dr. Raskin, feel you feel like lend to you being a good surgeon. Because when I think of a what would make a good surgeon, and I don't know much about neurosurgery, but um, leadership, like me, being meticulous, attention to detail, um, being able to handle high stress situations. Like I think if I was able to, you know, be smart enough and go through all the training you did. I don't know if my personality would lend to like working in a high stress situation like that or being able to like go quickly from plan A to B to C or so I guess what what um, aspects of your personality do you think maybe lend to you being a good surgeon? It's a hard question. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many facets to being a surgeon. Uh and certainly your the characteristics that make you a good surgeon, not every good surgeon would need to have, but you like recognizing that, you know, me being maybe um, carefree or having humor makes me, uh, people be able to work well with me in the, yeah, I so think, just you specifically, what do you, what would you say? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I think if I reflect on all the, you know, good surgeons, certainly I've had, I've had good surgeon mentors and bad surgeon mentors. And yeah. if you look at the good surgeon mentors, they are all technically capable. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Um, they have good training. They know how to use their hands. And they know how to affect a plan. Their mm-hmm. plan is co- is logical. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what makes a, a good technical surgeon, I think, mm-hmm. is uh, having good education, having a good uh, surgical training and understanding your anatomy and the complications that may come from what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but to be a good, like, surgeon leader in the operating room, you do have to have this sort of fun with a purpose mentality, right? Yeah. I mean, trying to ease different anxieties in the room, which means that you have to be a little bit emotionally capable to understand like, oh, yeah. you're a new nurse. You're going to be freaking out. I bet you haven't eaten and yeah. you feel sick to your stomach. Yeah. Just relax. It's all going to yeah. be fine. Yeah. So that sort of thing. Also I being think, mindful to be able to like read that in a room. I think that's the biggest thing I bring to the room. I mean, I come in the room yeah. and I look around and I can tell who's yeah. shaking. Yeah. That guy's new. Yeah. This person doesn't know what they're doing. You yeah. Know? And then you just sort of integrate everybody. Yeah. Just go around socially, talk, tell and a joke or two. Yeah. And even I really did have to... I like chugged a bot. I, I was nervous. Um, I have a weird thing about blood. Like sometimes even if I talk about blood, my hands will get sweaty. So my husband was like, this is hilarious. You're doing this. You're for sure passing out. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to. Cause I'm very, I like geek out about talking about the brain. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. I'm really drawn to our neuro on kids um, and supporting them with some of the stuff they struggle with afterwards. But Anyway, I chugged. I don't usually eat breakfast. I ate breakfast. I was like, I should eat. And I chugged water. So I really did have to pee. Yeah. And I like, 
asked the nurse, I was like, can I just sneak down to the bathroom? She was like, yeah, that's fine. But I came back and you were very aware. You yeah. turned around and you had your big funny glasses on. You're like, <laughs> are you okay? And I was like, yes, I am. And I'm like, oh, damn it. I was so proud of myself. Yeah. I'm not going to pass out. And he thinks I was. But even like me stepping out, you were very aware. Like, I'm going to check in. Yeah. You're not about to faint on I me. I hear and see everything that happens in the operating room. Yeah. So when you came back, your mask was a little bit crooked. Oh, and uh, And I knew it was your first time. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, are don't, you okay? Yeah, are don't you? fall over. Yeah. So I just make sure. I mean, that's the thing I think that sets me apart um, from some of my other surgeon colleagues who are all awesome surgeons and good leaders. Yeah. But we have competing interests in the operating room. Not only are we doing this surgical case, which is the number one most important thing. Yes. But we're leading the team. Yes. And then we are also educating residents and fellows. Yeah. And that is a critical part of our mission. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. yeah. And I uh, heard you, you know, talking with him and it was kind of like blowing my mind. You were, um, you know talking to him about when he was drilling and you were saying like, okay, yeah, this is like a pretty critical spot. So, you know, if you, I, I don't know your exact verbiage, but basically if you mess this up, it would have severe like negative, negative implications on the patient. And then just like, you, know, you were talking to him about not pushing on the drill. That's right. Um, but yeah, what a responsibility to feel like you're also, I'm sure you have to feel I don't know if I want to say nervous, but you're now you're putting that patient's care in his hands and coaching him through that. Like what a responsibility that yeah. is. It's a different skill set, I'll tell you. And like for me, drilling, you know, drilling holes, using all the surgical instruments, I'm very capable of doing after yeah. um, 20 years of training now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so but it's different. It's a different uh, skill set to then watch and coach, coach someone else, else use a high powered drill over the motor cortex and not knowing how he best responds. Like everybody takes, I don't know, constructive criticism or takes, you know, um, how you're presenting knowledge and sharing with him in different ways. So I thought this is also just a wild aspect of this. So I would never give an instrument like a drill to someone that I didn't think was one going to listen to me if I said stop. And number two, if I didn't trust that, they can do that step as well as I can do it. Yeah. So we use this zones of proximal development um, okay. education strategy. Uh-huh. It's a Russian strategy. And it um, basically, it's a Venn diagram with concentric circles. In the center are things that the learner can do by themselves. Yeah. And they should do those things. Yeah. Making a skin incision, you know, yeah. bipolaring a vessel. Yeah. Outside of that are things that a learner can do with a teacher. And those are the things uh-huh. that I'm helping them do is mm-hmm. things that I think they can do. They know how to hold a drill. They know how to yeah. you know drill, but there are certain nuances to it that they need to learn. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's safe to do while I'm watching them. And some probably that they can only learn by doing. You can only learn by doing. Yeah. And then outside of that are things that the learner cannot yet do. And those things the learner can't do. And so they don't, shouldn't do them. Yeah. So that's the Venn diagram that I use to make sure that um, I'm teaching residents and fellows and that they're not doing things worse than I can do it myself. Yeah. And that's important for families to know because sometimes they look at, you know, teaching hospitals as a bad thing. Yeah. It's actually a very good thing. There are tons of people around. Uh, I listen to my residents. They change my surgical plan commonly. They'll say, what do you think about coming at it from this perspective? And I'll say, well, I mean, I think that's also, you could do that too. I mean, there's one six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. You want to do that? Let's do that. Yeah. So I think it really is beneficial to fresh, have fresh, eager, learning eyes. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. 
Um, how, what about like, I was also thinking about like the certain mind headspace you have to go maybe check yourself into to go into the operating room. I was listening to a podcast recently with a neurosurgeon. And he was talking about how sometimes he feels like the OR is like this meditative state for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how you feel about, you know, just the headspace. Maybe you have to check yourself into and then check yourself out of. Yeah. And if you're even aware that's happening subconsciously? I think so. I think everyone has a pregame ritual that they do. Okay. Um, so for me, um, not every case is the same. Some yeah. cases are don't take as much cognitive ability. I mean, it's just like, yeah. you know, putting in a certain device. It's yeah. just like, that's just what you do. It's a set of steps, yeah. like making a sandwich. There's nothing yes. to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and there could be complications, but yeah. they're minor and you just deal with them. Yeah. Um, but like a, a big brain tumor in post your fossa of a one month old, like that, yeah. you would definitely be locked and ready to go. Yeah. And I think that the best time to get sort of ready is when you're washing your hands outside of the operating room. Yeah. And that's sort of like, okay, you're thinking about the steps for the last time before you're going to do the steps. Yeah. So you, in your mind, go through the procedure. Am I ready for this? Did I look at this? Yeah. There's different blood vessels from the skin to yeah. the inside that you need to make sure are you've looked at them and you know that they're normal or they're yeah. abnormal and how are yeah. you going to handle them? Uh, especially in a little baby like that. So yeah. I think that it is, you know, you're washing your hands and you're thinking about the case. And then in certain cases, like a, a tumor in an older child, I mean, the opening or what we call the approach, the incision, the craniotomy, yeah. all that stuff is pretty standard stuff. So you might, you know, not have the same, quiet approach as you do when you pull in the microscope and you turn the lights down and Mm -hmm. then you start operating under the microscope. Then that's a total change in demeanor, change Mm -hmm. in the room, change in everything. Yeah. I could see that a couple of times like that shift. Yeah. Um, Are you superstitious? I'm only a little stitious. Okay. Uh (laughs) Do you do anything that you're like, I got to do this every time? I don't because then uh, like. Well, then what if it messes up? Exactly. Then you can never wear those socks again. Right. I mean, it's just. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. So I don't. Um, What about, um, I can also imagine, like we talked about, about checking out of the headspace of being in the OR and then your next step is to go talk to a family. Um, And I know you probably do a lot of relationship building and conversations pre and post. Um, that is something I just can't like wrap my head around. Um, I feel like being a parent too. I just, I'm like feeling misty saying this right now. Um, how do you, um, and you can't really be trained on how to talk to families or good bedside manner, but I think it's so important. So I did a very, um, non- um, official survey yeah. uh-huh. before we talked about um, with like maybe 15 different moms, some moms that have had brain surgeries or yeah. their, sorry, their children rather have had brain surgeries. And then even just some of my friends that's kids have had tubes in their ear. Yeah. So, um, and talk to them about um, what were their common worries going into this. Um, and of course, like in order, it was child going under. Sure. Um, and then next was just being surgery is so unique, I think, and that I can't really think of any other um, scenario in a medical setting where a parent is forced to be very separate from their child. Yeah. Can't see any of it. I mean, if your child's getting chemo, you can sit right next to them. If they're getting an LP, you can sit right next to them. Right. You can't see anything. So you're just um, creating probably these own your own worries in your head. Um, that's got to be pretty 
difficult. So it was um, each mom said all of them. I think there were 15 worried about getting put under being so separate from your child, worrying that your child is scared. Um, Those were the the top two. Um, But they all talked about how important it was for them um, that the relationship they built with that surgeon or felt that they did prior to. um, And each mom that said they had a good experience, they said that their surgeon made them feel like their child was their own. Um, And I can my children have, I mean, my son's been to the ED once. We've been very lucky with my, our children and their health. But um, every time I leave my pediatrician office, I'm like, Mason and Monroe are her favorite patients yeah. for sure. Yeah. Are they? No. <laughs> but she makes me feel that way. Yeah. And that's so important because I trust everything she says. Um, and I, she's a Riley doctor, a fangirl when I see her in the hallway. I'm like, Hi. <laughs> uh, but so, so that trust, I think, is really built by a physician or a surgeon making a family feel like, you know, I'm going to treat your kid as if they are my own. Um, but you can't really teach that yeah. to people and how to do that. So I guess this long winded question. But what are the things I guess you try to keep in mind when talking to families about a pretty nerve wracking experience for them? I think you hit the nail on the head with the trust thing. Um, you can have the best technical surgeon in the world, but if you don't trust them and something goes wrong, you're going to think they killed your kid or yeah. did something. Yeah. And so I think that it is absolutely critical that a family trusts their surgeon. And so whenever someone says, I want, I'm going to go get a second opinion. I'm like, yes, go get a second opinion. And, yeah. and it's not just your surgeon. You should trust the team. Mm-hmm. You should trust that the institution, has the child in its best interest. Um, and so I always encourage families to go get a second opinion, go find out what else is out there, and then you choose the surgeon and the team that you're most comfortable with. Because national sort of training programs make it such that everyone has pretty much the same surgical training. Um, yeah. From a surgeon to surgeon perspective, like I can do a few more things than maybe another surgeon because I had that specific training and lasers and stuff. Yeah. But um, from a cutting and sewing perspective, we all use. 10 fingers to do it. It's not like there's any magic. No no one has a wand that they're using. Uh, So I think that that's very important. Number two, I understand uh, that mothers and fathers, they, they are in charge of their child. Mm. They're protecting their child. And when they have a neurosurgical problem, they do not have that ability. They they don't have that autonomy. It's totally out of control. And they're sort of spiraling. They're Mm -hmm. like super anxious, don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I try to reduce their anxiety by saying, yeah, this is a new diagnosis brain tumor. It's going to change your life. Yeah. These are the stages. You're going to be in the preoperative stage. It's going to be really anxiety inducing. Yeah. They're going to be in the operative stage. It's going to be the most anxiety inducing because there's going to be really no insight for you. Your kid's going to be in the OR. Yeah. That's a very risky time for your kid. And then we're going to be in the post-operative phase. Your anxiety is going to be a little lower, but not a lot lower. And then it's going to be a long period of time. And during all of those transitions, you have a big team and we're all shepherding you through all of the anxious periods and taking you from point to point and there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. It's like a roller coaster. Hopefully overall, everything is trending towards a logical outcome for your tumor, which is probably chemotherapy radiation or further surgery or shunt or whatever it is. Yeah. But we have a relationship. I trust you. You trust me. I'm going to do the right thing for your kid. And there's a big team that wants to do the right thing for your child. So, yeah. Uh, So I think that's the way I try to interact with families. Um, and then the final thing is after surgery, like what we say, what comes out of our mouth is like, 
etched in their mind forever. You know, yes. the doctor said yeah. blank. Yes. Yeah. So that is important to tell residents and fellows and stuff that, that the things you say seriously. are going to be repeated to generations of people. So yeah. Um, what I always say is things went as expected mm-hmm. or things didn't go as expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never say things were awesome. Yeah. We were in there. It was so great. Yeah. yeah Cause it's yeah. not great for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just say things. Isn't went, it funny how one word can, yeah. Mean something. It means something to different people. Like different people might say, it went awesome. That's good. Or he was just joking around. He said it went awesome. Yeah. They were having fun in there. Yeah. So I just say things went as expected. Yeah. The tumor came out, no complications, you know. And then I'll give details depending on how many details they're capable of receiving. Yeah, sometimes or, are they even like ready to process stuff? Often they never often in that particular point in time, they're not ready to receive any information except mm-hmm. surgery's over. You can see your child in 30 minutes. Yeah. That has to be, um, and there's lots of aspects of your job where it's, I'm, I don't understand how you guys are able to like balance an ego because you're like this superhero, like walking into the room, but families are like staring at the door, anticipating. And sometimes you're telling them really awful news yeah. or sometimes you're able to tell them really wonderful news. Um, so how do you like, Maybe you hone into the more humbling aspect of that. Yeah, I think I do. I mean, I don't think that we're so I'm just the talking head of the team. Yeah. Right? So I do think that I'm just one member of like a giant team. Yeah. And although I'm like the leader of the team. Yeah. Uh, I still don't feel like, you know, a superhero. I feel like, uh, you know, this is my job. I do yeah. it every day. Yeah. So I just feel like. There's not, you know, I know that people wait for the doctor, you know, to yeah. come in and yeah. uh, I know that that is happening. So I, I try to shy away from that because it's not really the message yeah. I want to send out to people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to read you a text from a mom that you did surgery for with on her son. Um, we were just talking about. I was telling her that that I was doing this podcast and um, prepping for prepping for it and asking her about some of those worries that she she felt. Um, well, one thing she told me to ask, she goes, I would be very curious to yeah. ask a neurosurgeon um, their thoughts on like the incident rate. So do you think that it's just like with social media and we're more aware of things and how we're spreading information um, with brain tumors or are brain tumors happening more often? Is yeah. it? It's really hard to know because uh, imaging, you know, is new. We haven't had CT scanners in clinical practice since yeah. the 70s. And yeah. then MRI scanners since late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So a lot of kids who just died. Yeah. Uh, we had no real understanding of why. Yeah. Probably had brain tumors. I mean, yeah. and so our you know, our longitudinal studies of the incidence of brain tumors yeah. really limited by the fact that we really couldn't image them. I mean, yeah. we could really only operate on kids who were literally yeah. sick and dying. And then yeah. we did cases and then we would say, well, that is a tumor, obviously. So yeah. I, I'm not sure we know enough right now to say they're increasing. Certainly our diagnosis of brain tumors is increasing. Yeah. But I think it might be because we're looking a lot more. Yeah. Um, so do you think technology, let's just say in the last decade is like, just continually improving and changing so much or yeah technology imaging technology like surgery today versus 10 years ago totally different in your field or well 
some stuff, not all stuff. Ten years ago, yeah, I think that we've had the, I mean, certain things have evolved, like very specifically nuanced approaches to particular types of lesions, like yeah. laser ablation. That's yeah. new. FDA approved in 2007 and 2009. Yeah. Um, the MR thermography that comes along with that, new. Yeah. Totally revolutionized a lot of yeah. minimally invasive surgery. But the way we cut through the skull, for example, yeah. and make incisions and stuff, we still do that. The same yeah. as they used to do in Aztec. I mean, yeah. you see these people with trephinations of the head from uh, from chisels and stuff. So yeah. we're still opening the scalp, opening the skull, you know, with our fingers for the most part with the instruments. So I think that very little advance has been made overall. But I think in specific instances, we certainly have had a, a really good uh, increase in the application of technology. Yeah. Okay. So she told me to ask you that. Okay. But then she said, um, I also just feel like pediatric neurosurgeons are the most amazing people. To be smart enough, skilled enough, and confident enough to operate on a tiny brain is nothing short of a miracle. They're angels that walk on earth. <laughs> Pretty sweet. Yeah, that's very sweet. Yeah. Um, okay. So to make sure our listeners know that you're just um, a normal human. Yeah. A, su a super smart but normal human. We're going to do some rapid fire questions. Okay. Like five. I'm ready. Um, so just say what first comes to your mind. Just for the super smart thing. I always, yes. when my wife is surprised that I can do something, which yes. isn't that common, but yeah. I always tell her, I'm not as dumb as I look. What is something that you suck at? Let's, uh, can you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Like, can you... I suck at. Did you do home improvements? No, I okay. suck at home improvements. Okay, yeah, great. like, oh my gosh, I'll hang something in the part of the drywall. Can you hang a TV? No way! Oh my wow. god, I cannot do that. Okay, no. that's great. No, I would fail at that. Okay, that's wonderful. <laughs> okay, so favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie. Just rapid fire. I can't yes. think about it too much. I mean, much. I'll give you like ten seconds. This is what I suck at. I suck at determining favorites. Oh, you know, I'm yeah, like, well, I'm indecisive. You can't be indecisive and a brain surgeon. Well, I'm not indecisive in the operating room, but when I'm okay. asked about like a favorite, then I'm like, okay. well, there's a spectrum. I like this. I like that. Sure, there's sure. certain nuances to it. Uh, Maybe the most recent favorite movie. John Wick 3. Okay. Yeah. That's Action funny. movies, you know. That, like, I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. He's uh -huh. obsessed with that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen it like three times. I like it. <laughs> okay. Favorite food? Another favorite? Chicken farm. That's easy. Wow. Okay. Hobby or favorite pastime? So you're not operating on brains. What's something that you enjoy to do? Oh, well, I actually like reflecting. So yeah. I'll have like a tea or coffee and I just think about stuff. Wow. Um, do you meditate? I, you know, you I, I kind of suck at meditation because it's hard to Somebody clear thoughts. my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, but I think about things. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, that's I think about things like happiness. Yeah. yeah. Like happiness, I think is a critical thing that we should be trying to achieve actively. Yeah. And it's hard for you to even define it for yourself. What makes you happy? Yeah. And, um, anyways, I just reflect on things. Yeah. Do you listen to podcasts? No. You should listen to podcasts. I should. Yeah. That's like when I do a lot of my reflecting. Oh, yeah. I have a long commute home. It's like an hour. So oh, I like to listen to podcasts yeah, and think. Um, would you jump out of a plane? With a parachute? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Without a parachute? No. No way. <laughs> okay. Coolest place you've ever traveled or bucket list place you would like to travel to? Okay. So coolest place I ever traveled to is probably China. I just went. Uh, we went around from like uh, – 
Chengdu, which is the, the panda exhibit. Oh, cool. uh, we went to Xi'an, which is where all the terracotta warriors were found underneath the earth. Oh, and cool. it's just got so much history there. It's such a crazy culture. Do was, you and your wife went? Yeah, my wife and I. Do you I, have kids? No, just okay. wifey. Okay, yeah. cool. So my wifey and I went. It was so fun. How um, long were you there? A week. Okay. Yeah. And we had a we had a, like a guide in each city. We went to four cities and learned a ton about the culture and stuff. It was so cool. Very cool. I went to the Great Wall, for example. Do you like to travel? I do. Yeah, I hated it until I met my my tia, and my tia is a very good traveler. My wife's been to seventy some countries. Oh, and wow. so she's an expert traveler. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So she changed my life. And then awesome. a bucket list thing, we're going to yes. see the monarch migration in December wow. in Mexico. So do you try to travel pretty regularly, like a couple? Yeah, we don't have any kids of, yet. And yeah, so right, get it out. Yeah, so right now we're just Let me tell to, you, when they come. Yeah, they take over. Yeah, it's great, <laughs> but it's such a life change. Um, okay. Okay. If I could give you two free concert tickets to any concert, and I will allow you to resurrect someone from the dead. Oh, Okay. Where would you go? Okay. Front row. This is going to be a weird answer, but it's Eminem. Wow. Yeah. Never would have You guessed. never would have guessed that. So I do know every word to Eminem's first three albums. Wow. But I think Eminem has such a cool story of like adverse, overcoming adversity Absolutely. and yeah. kicking a drug habit. Yeah. And now he's like this lame dad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I think he's a really cool character. Wow. Uh, so anyways, I, I've been okay. to a couple Eminem concerts. So if I could meet Eminem one day, I would totally do it. Wow. Cool. Okay. I have one more question to ask you and I'm going to let you go. You're so gracious. I feel like this has been too. Okay. So I have one more question for you before I let you go. Thank you for your time today. Thank um, you. So a lot of the work that I do is I'm meeting kids um, while they're on treatment and trying to help them reintegrate back into school and um, post-surgery and certainly on treatment, life is totally changed for them. So kids that once were really active in sports, you can't do that anymore. And maybe you're a different learner. So all those like executive functioning skills that are just different. Um, Before we started this podcast, I was telling you about a past patient who's just struggling with the new learner that he is. He really valued his studies and how, you know, good he was at school and that's changing and it's hard hard for them. Yeah. So I recently went to this training. It was, it's called MindCap and it's this um, forcing method, um, but essentially um, a lot of like meta cognitive work. So thinking about your thinking and the type of learner that you are and yeah. that your cognitive abilities. So do you think that the brain is not a muscle, obviously, but do you think that we can be treating the brain like a muscle in some aspects and trying to rehabilitate it or maybe, um, well, I'll just leave it at that, like kind of rehabilitated, um, with our children that are having issues with some of that. Yeah. I, I think that, um, like a muscle, if you, the more you use it in different ways, the stronger it will get. Um, it's terrible to be a kid with a brain tumor and you're operated and now you have these limitations and your whole life is different. Your yeah. Call your, your, you know, friends and family and stuff look at you different. You look at yourself different. Um, so it's terrible, and I had never had to deal with that. But yeah. it is a form of adversity, mm-hmm. and adversity should be overcome. I mean, you shouldn't look at adversity and say, well, I quit. I mean, that's too hard. There's yeah. just no way I can yeah. do anything. And then what? So yeah. in your child, and you're going to live, I mean, with this adversity. So you're just yeah. your options are to give up or to find a way around it. Yeah. 
And I think there's lots of ways to find a way around it. And if you need different support, there's tons of support out there mm -hmm. uh, as far as like school support, mm -hmm. IEPs and 504s, but also mm -hmm. just like psychological support. Mm -hmm. um, talk to your friends, talk to your counselors, talk mm -hmm. to people like you who mm -hmm. do such a good job and are critical to kids like reintegrating in society. Um, and and work through it. Don't just give up. Yeah. I think sometimes our kids think like this is my new brain. And um, and that's funny you say workarounds because I am often saying like, yeah, your memory might be different. It might be harder for you, like memory recall, especially with math. Think yeah. of how much math builds on itself. We've got high schoolers that are like struggling with like basic math facts because they can't recall that past information. And they feel, you know, I see them sit in clinic and say, I feel dumb. And that's so, you know, defeating. And we, I think we forget as adults, like, how much school is their life. Yeah. Socially, it's, like, what makes them. It, it's their identity. And if that feels different and not the same, it's pretty defeating. But um, that there are workarounds. Um, and, you know, if your memory is different, there are things that you can do and strategies that you can try that it might be different, but that you can try and it'll, you know, work. Um, so it doesn't have to be this debilitating, you know, I'm not able to do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think that um, holding on to, I should be able to do things. I think the word should can be a very dangerous word because yeah. things have changed Yeah, and you should, there is no should, there is only you can currently and you will be able to in the future. Yeah. So should is like, I, I should be able to do this because I used to do this. That's, that's just, it's hampering you. You can't yeah. move past that. Yeah. It's like I currently can't do this activity like math but I should, in the future, I will be able to. And then just get from I currently can't to being able to yeah. by, you know, implementing different strategies, talking to different people. Yeah. Maybe you need a medication for attention. Yeah. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of different options, but don't give up. Yeah. And you can't compare. It's hard not to, but I try to say, it, you know, to our kids all the time, you have to stop comparing yourself to the kid before all of this. Correct. This is... A traumatic life event. Your brain has undergone so much. We just have to find those workarounds in new ways to make you be successful, but we're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that happens to everybody. It happens to adults too. Yes. And it's not always medical, but I mean, there's yeah. always something that presents. And after that point, your life is never the same. Divorce. Yeah. Parent death, child yeah. death. I yeah. mean, bad breakup, you know, F yeah. on a test, like yeah. not getting into medical school. There's yeah. always going to be something that changes your life and you can either just let it change your life and then that's your new life or yeah. you can say well that's unacceptable i'm gonna yeah you know, adapt improvise and ultimately prevail yeah well thank you for all that you do for our families and thank you for your time today you're welcome thank you Yay. i mean it you guys are awesome i mean the, the kids need all this support to reintegrate the society and thanks for doing your job hey thanks it's always a good day if a neurosurgeon tells you, thanks for doing your job. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Askin. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations and topics to dive into. You can also hashtag liftingthefog on Twitter or Instagram. 
with ideas for future conversations and subscribe. So whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but please subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LiftingTheFog1, and that's number one. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for intentional purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions you may have. Thanks for tuning in.